Hello and welcome to Not So Molly Mormon Podcast. This is Katie and I'm here with another mini-sode for you today. This one comes from our previous guest, Noah. Now, if you haven't, for whatever reason, listened to that episode, go back because Noah was an amazing guest and I wanted to share Noah's story, mission story, because they wrote this to us and I was floored by how incredible and eloquent and emotional this story made me. And I thought, I'm going to read this on a separate podcast because I wanted Noah to have all the time that they needed to tell more on the other episode, which... By the way, we've heard you loud and clear. We're going to have Noah back on. We're going to ask Noah to come back on. (laughs) Um, So I'm just going to jump right in, and I'm going to try to not pause too much to insert my own opinions because I really like the way that this flows. So here we go. I left for the Morristown, New Jersey mission, English speaking, in the summer of 2010. I was attending BYU at the time. While the school would later seem oppressive and stale, my freshman year was a time of social blossoming and self-discovery, not that it wasn't without its quirks. By the end of my first semester, it seemed there was someone opening their mission call every night in the lobby of the Heritage Hall's dormitory building. (laughs) I was studying French at the time and hoped to put it to good use in my mission, but the Lord had other plans for me. I remember opening my mission call and not even realizing that New Jersey could have been on the list of potential places. I reminded myself that an apostle of the Lord had supposedly knelt and prayed to know where I should go until I convinced myself that it was truly called of God. Being born in the church, I knew my whole life that I was going to serve a mission. I sang songs in nursery about serving after I had grown a foot or two. I was taught in young men's that if you were truly converted in your heart, you would know it by your desire to share the gospel. I consequently tried to prove I was truly converted by giving a Book of Mormon to my social studies teacher. It never left that spot on his desk the entire year. Most significantly, my patriarchal blessing promised me that there would be certain experiences in life I could only have while on my mission. Serving a mission was so self-evident that by the time I arrived at the MTC, I hardly knew how I even got here. there. After we had been separated from our families, led through the orientations, given our companions, and left to our rooms for the night, a horrible realization came over me. I had known all my life that I was going to serve a mission, but I had never actually made the decision. Oh. I panicked, not knowing how that was possible. How had I skipped that crucial step? How had I never taken the time to imagine what it would actually be like? I remember the lights being turned out in my room and realizing that although I was only a few hundred meters from where I went to school a few months earlier, where I had my first kiss, where I had lived on my own for the first time, across from the temple where I had gone on my nightly runs, and from the BYU creamery where I went for late night snack binges, I was not actually allowed to leave. 
The MTC dorm suddenly looked like a prison cell, and I felt embarrassed and ashamed for never having taken the time to think about if I even wanted to go on a mission. For the first time in my life, I began to grasp just how long two years was. How can a 19-year-old know two years of the world moving on without me? My friends and family making two years of memories without me. Of course, I wouldn't actually make it the full two years, but I didn't know it then. I did the only thing I felt I could in the moment and got on my knees and prayed. I decided not to get off my knees until I felt like I had a confirmation that this was what I was supposed to do. While I recognize now that this is actually the opposite of making your own decision, I knelt there for nearly 40 minutes and probably fell asleep a few times in the middle, exhausted from the long day and my building anxiety. I don't know if I got the answer I was looking for or merely wore myself out, but either way, I managed to pull it out of my mind and decided that all I could do was go through with it. While this is a much larger story, my mother had found a doctor who agreed to put me on psychiatric medication based on ambiguous diagnosis as a part of a hyper-controlling home life ever since I was around seven or eight years old. Once I graduated from high school, one of the first choices I made on my own was to get off of it, and freshman year of college was effectively the first year of my life without medication. The first year of being free. Whatever self-development I had made that first year away from this abusive situation was unraveled in the mission field, where not only was every second of every day dictated by the little white Bible, but my adherence to those rules directly reflected my worthiness and faithfulness. A year or so before I entered the mission field, northern New Jersey got a new mission president who made it his personal mission to make the rule book seem as lax as a divorced dad who sees his kids every other weekend. He shortened preparation day by an hour, banned any music that couldn't be played over the pulpit, and instructed the elders to not even look at the sister missionaries, lest our animalistic urges override our prefrontal cortex and lead to sex. He even distributed a full page of 60 words we were to remove from our vocabulary that he determined were two of the world. Included on this list were words like dude, dang, and man to refer to another person. <laughs> wow. More intense than his rules was the culture of compulsory obedience and self-enforcement he created among the elders and sisters. My district leader reported to my zone leaders every time I took an extra 15 minutes for lunch. And whenever our weekly numbers were too low, the zone leaders would do emergency exchanges to question our faithfulness and to try to figure out what we were doing wrong. My faithfulness and obedience were questioned regularly. The one or two elders who baptized constantly were held up as examples to prove how uninspired the rest of us were. Unsurprisingly, my mental health quickly began to deteriorate. But looking back, I was clearly not the only one. One of my companions that I had for three months never said a single word in a lesson or knocked on a single door unless I turned to him and invited him to do so. I never blamed him. That was the same winter that three feet of snow fell and didn't melt until April. I, too, spent days perpetually within sight and sound of him not having the energy to say a single kind word of encouragement or even small talk. Every ounce of energy I had was spent forcing myself to stop every last person on the street lest I be responsible for them missing out on the gospel. 
trying to get them to pray with me and inviting them to be baptized on our first encounter like the mission president, the mission president asked us to do. This way, I could count it as a lesson and avoid another emergency exchange with the zone leaders. Many of the other missionaries were suffering as well, though we made every effort to hide it because fatigue and depression are incongruous with faith and obedience. At one meeting with all the missionaries gathered together, the mission president stood up and said, seemingly apropos of nothing, Stop trying to drink or smoke. It's not going to get you sent home. Before he moved on to his next topic, presumably to introduce a new rule or commandment. Some people say that the severity of mental health issues is often defined by how severely it impacts daily functioning. For better or for worse, this has never been the case for me. I stick to the rules and I get my work done no matter the cost and no matter, no matter my condition. I woke up every morning on time, exercised, studied, prayed, and always left the house on time most days, returning home for lunch and skipping dinner altogether unless a member fed us because it felt like a waste of God's time. All the while, my thoughts became more obsessive, swirling like a whirlwind. By nine months, I started cutting myself, dismantling old razors or scissors in the bathroom during lunch breaks or after the day was done. If my companions noticed, they didn't say anything. It was winter, and we were wearing long sleeves and jackets. I ended up showing this to the mission president. He was a medical doctor, after all. He and his wife were making a rare visit to our apartment, and I rolled up my sleeve to show the raw marks on my arm. He looked at them and simply said, Well, don't do that, and continued his tour of the apartment. We didn't speak of it again. I don't remember hearing anything more about it until a few months later, he had me do a screening with a church psychologist to get a diagnosis and started taking me and three other elders into New York City to see a psychiatrist. But by this point, it was too late. And if anything, the medication made things worse. I didn't feel I had any more ability to say yes or no to taking these powerful medications than I did when I was seven or eight years old. And a decade later, I am still trying to get off of them. Somewhere in the midst of this health crisis, I also faced a crisis of faith. Up to this point, I believed in the church, a model of belief and conformity, but I had never been asked to give so much before. Such a sacrifice required a more sure witness, and after months of begging and pleading with the Lord, those witnesses came in the form of a series of spiritual experiences some of which seem pretty feeble in retrospect, but others I have a hard time accounting for, even now as an ex-believer. Whatever the reason, I had found a way to obtain a sure enough belief in God and the church. That, too, came with a cost. Put quite simply, I knew that there was not an ounce of energy, not a second of the day, that I had not consecrated to the Lord. He could not ask any more of me. I also knew I had what I considered at the time was a complete surety that he lived and his church was true, and I could not offer any more faith. So why was I still suffering so greatly? Where was the promised salvation? This came to a head shortly before the apostle Elder Bednar was scheduled to come and give a fireside talk to the mission. My companion and I were driving to a member's house for dinner in rural northern New Jersey. As I mentioned, we didn't actually eat dinner unless a member fed us, but more than the food, we looked forward to not having to talk to someone who hated us or having to invite a complete stranger to baptism after only a few sentences. 
we looked forward to letting our guard down for just a few moments. It is hard to explain the feeling that was in the car during that long drive through the forest to the member's house. I think we were unaware ourselves of how much we were carrying. That is, until the member called and canceled the dinner. Why this was the last straw, I do not know. But in that moment, I felt my heart break and all the oxygen get sucked out of the Red Ford Fiesta. Without being overly poetic or dramatic, by heartbreak I mean a very real physical and intense pain in my heart. The crack spread until it reached my soul and I knew in that moment that I, as a human being, was broken. I pulled the car into a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot and a silence filled the car. Without looking at him, I knew my companion was experiencing something similar. He got out and walked into the Dunkin' Donuts to buy a dozen donuts for us to binge eat. As I remained alone in the car, a singular emotion filled my body. Betrayal. I knew God lived. I knew I had done everything right. I had given him my all, and he had betrayed me. With all other factors accounted for, it could only be his will for me to suffer this much. For the next four months, I still woke up on time. I still read my scriptures. I still said my prayers. But in my prayers, all I could manage was to curse God. Fuck you, you motherfucking asshole. Fucking dickhead. Fuck you in the name of fucking Jesus Christ. Amen. These were the types of prayers I offered for months on end, never once daring to simply not pray because God had commanded us to pray and I believed in God. The day after the member canceled our dinner, I found myself alone in the bathroom, new cut marks still fresh on my arms and legs, and impulsively I jerked myself off, effectively looking God in the eye as I did so, a giant fuck you to the big guy. Pretty much immediately, however, I felt so guilty I had to call my mission president and tell him about it. Is this a habit? he asked. I explained to him that it wasn't, not for a few years anyway. It was just this one time. Well, he said again, don't do that. But that did little to assuage my guilt or my pain. There was only one hope for me. Elder Bednar, an apostle, a living prophet of the living God, was coming to speak to us in a few days. I prayed. I prayed with every ounce of faith, with every fiber of my being, as the Mormons love to say. I knew, just like in the Book of Mormon, that if anybody could heal me, he could. He would. He had to. I spent hours on my knees each day, long after my companion had gone to bed, preparing myself for the miracle I knew would come. I couldn't leave room for doubt that it might not happen. I had to know that God's prophet would see me, that God would whisper in his ear and instruct him to heal me. He didn't. Instead, he came and told a story of a young man in a hospital who wanted Elder Bednar to heal him. I can, the apostle told the dying young man in the story, but do you have faith not to be healed? I know now that this is a story Elder Bednar tells almost every chance he can get. It is part of the church's larger push to redefine and diminish what it means to receive a miracle, but at the time it seemed too coincidental. It was a prophet of the Lord speaking past 150 other missionaries and directly to me. I, just like the young man in the hospital, would not be healed, and I was stupid and faithless for even hoping to be. At the end of the fireside, every missionary lined up and shook his hand. 
When it was my turn and I reached out my hand, the same one I had used to masturbate just a few days earlier, I could barely look him in the eye, convinced that he could use his apostolic powers to read my mind and know that I had broken the law of chastity and had faithlessly hoped for a miracle. I returned back to the mission apartment, burning with the betrayal of my God, ashamed at my sin and embarrassed of my desire to be healed. I also knew definitively, with the certainty of an apostolic promise, that the Lord would not heal my suffering. I was alone. For the remaining months of my mission, I studied the scriptures, cursed God in every private prayer, and then, right on schedule, put on the fakest smile you ever saw and dragged my companion out the door to preach the truest and cruelest gospel to all of God's children. I took the pills the New York City psychiatrist gave to me, but they just made me feel exhausted or strange. I continued to cut myself until its effect wore off as well. At this time, I was promoted to district leader in Jersey City, and it was my turn to look after the depressed missionaries underneath me the best that I could. It was my turn to call out other elders for staying too long at lunch, for not being faithful, for not teaching enough lessons. Sure enough, one day I did notice one of the companionships under me having taken an extra long lunch. I asked one of them about it, and they said they just got in. I asked the other, and he confessed to me that, yes, they had exceeded the hour break for lunch they were allowed. Instead of reporting it to the zone leaders, I just looked at the first elder and told him, Look, man, I get it. It's rough. Take all the time you need. Just don't lie to me, all right? And then I let it go. Then, 13 months into my mission, I found myself sitting in the bathroom with a bottle of ibuprofen on the counter. I opened the cap and started swallowing pills one at a time at a slow but unbroken pace. I knew that a handful of pills wouldn't do any real harm, but as I reached for the next one and the next one, I noticed the complete absence of fear, of guilt, of that little thrill, the little voice in my head that should have said, maybe don't. With that, I realized I had no more left to give. I put down the bottle and called my mission president. I simply told him, I think it's time for me to go home. And all I remember him saying was, I think you're right. Two days later, I was standing alone in the Newark airport with tears in my eyes. Presumably my family had been called, or maybe I called them, I don't remember. I just remember standing alone, completely alone, <clears throat> realizing that my patriarchal blessing was right. This was truly an experience I could have only had while on my mission for the Lord. Five hours later, I landed at the small Bakersfield airport. My mom was waiting for me, along with the bishop and a handful of ward members my mom had called. She must have wanted to give me the hearty welcome that she believed a normal return missionary deserved, the one she always imagined for me. I was released and saw a Mormon therapist for a few weeks before I drove back to Utah to start my studies again. Back to Provo, back to the creamery and the MTC, though this time on the other side. Everything looked the same, but nothing was familiar. Not God, not the church, not my own face in the mirror. I had to rebuild my theology from the ground up, realizing that nothing about God or Mormonism worked the way I thought it did before I left on my mission. It would be two years before I felt like I was back on my feet. But the truth is, even a decade later, I am still coming to terms with what happened to me and still trying to heal. Ooh, yeah, so 
I think you guys can probably see why I wanted to read that one all on its own, just the length and the time that was put into it. And of course, Noah, a big thank you to you as well. Like we said, when you were a guest, thank you for your vulnerability and for your bravery in sharing this that I think can help resonate with so many others. Um, I hope you guys have a really great week and we'll be back soon with more of your stories. Bye.